This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Boom, we are on like Donkey Kong. Greeting the Apocalypse is the show you are tuned to, 3RRR's weekly glance into the new systems emerging through the many, many cracks in the old systems. Uh, Bush is my name. Katie Dundas was the charming voice, the Belle of Glasgow you just heard. You, you're doing well, Katie? I'm doing very well. Splendid. Yeah. Kent? Good evening to you all. Katie, let's talk to our guest. Well, tonight we are very happy to have Matu Bush here in the studio, so we actually have two Bushes. Two Absolutely. lovely bushes Respect. sitting next to each other with various different bushiness on the face and on the head. So, welcome, Matu Bush. Absolute pleasure to be here and great to uh, meet a long-lost relative that I didn't know I had. Yeah. yeah. Who's not an oil baron from Texas. Correct. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, Matu founded One Good Street, a social networking platform to encourage neighbour-initiated care for older residents at risk of social isolation and loneliness. Matu is Design Integration Lead at Bolton <coughs> Clark driving innovation and creativity in the aged and community sector. And a sector that's coming under a lot of scrutiny at the moment. A lot of you may have watched The Four Corners um, last night about what's going on and there's going to be uh, a royal inquiry. Is that the right term? Yeah, a royal commission. A royal oh. commission into the into the sector. Yeah. But Matty, you're very interesting also. You've got a master's degree in public health Broad clinical and managerial nursing experience, including working abroad in Mexico with no other than Mother Teresa. Correct. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And that was an international border aid. And you've also worked in emergency oncology, intensive care and as a sexual health nurse practitioner. So I'm, that's why I'm so tired doing all those things. Well, I went, um, the Canberra Times asked me what it was like to work with Mother Teresa and I said she was like Margaret Thatcher in a sari. Whoa, <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> and that was the headline, Mother Teresa like Thatcher in sari. So my first lesson in media came with uh, in, in association with Mother Teresa. When I was 19, I wrote her a letter and said, yeah. I want to work with you, you get shit done. And she wrote back. Really? So I hopped on a plane. I still have that letter. Yeah. And, and she put me straight to work. Was she okay with you using the word shit? I well, I didn't actually use that. I was, okay, okay, okay. I was, I was embellishing my story to sound controversial. <coughs> she, um, so she very quickly, she, I think what Mother Teresa knew how to do was get people who had passion to do something and put them, uh, getting them doing stuff tangible straight away. Mm. So she, I think she teaches us how to do volunteerism in 2018. Now, if you want to volunteer somewhere, you've got to have a police check, which I get. Then you've got to have an interview process. Then you've got to do three days' worth of training and some electronic modules and then finally get to peel a potato in a soup kitchen. Not that mm. with Mother Teresa. Like, you meet her and, like, three seconds later, you're either uh, looking after a, an orphan or you're peeling potatoes in Gore Street in their, um, their soup kitchen. So she's just an extremely good project manager. She was. And you know what? She could teach the startup community something about scale-up because she was in 160-plus countries. Mm. That is... 
that is amazing. Mm. Just the power of letter writing. Totally. Yeah, especially even even now, just a handwritten letter to somebody. Write to your politicians and complain about things. I'm going to put a book, bookmark on what you were just saying then about efforts for like community action and stuff and how... We could come back to this later in the show, but that's what you just said about the hampering effect of so much of the regulation. We're going to touch on that. I'm going to bookmark it right now, Katie, while you keep running the show. <laughs> bookmark it, Bushy. Do it. So we're going to have a conversation tonight about loneliness mm-hmm. um, and some of the work that you're doing around um, loneliness in the elderly sector. But I was reading a little bit around the history of loneliness. Um, We think it's a very modern issue because Mm. everybody's tapped into uh, Facebook and Instagram and all of these other things on their phone and kids don't talk to each other anymore at school. They're next to each other texting. And the the social isolation that causes is Mm. becoming a big problem. It's becoming another epidemic and it's being written about a lot in the paper. But I was reading an article by Faye Bound Alberti, that was her name, um, online in Aeon. Uh, and it was talking about how now by the 21st century, loneliness has become ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Commentators are calling it an epidemic akin to leprosy, a silent plague of civilization. Uh, and this year, the United Kingdom went so far as to appoint a minister for loneliness. But loneliness isn't universal. It might be more of a Western condition um, Mm. when we're moving away from living in communities. Uh, Nor is it a purely visceral internal experience. So this article talks about how it's less a single emotion and more a complex cluster of feelings Mm. composed of anger, grief, fear, anxiety, sadness and shame. It also has social and political dimensions and has changed throughout time. Bushy and I were talking earlier about how civilizations have changed and how um, in the very, very far gone distance when the Western civilization lived um, more closely together in community Mm. that we didn't feel as isolated as we do now. And of course, lots of the world still doesn't. Um, And from then to now, it's shifted and changed over time. The the stigma associated with loneliness. So back in the times when we were all thinking about God a lot, you know, in the 1800s, being lonely and being at one was, it was okay. There wasn't a stigma attached to it. It was okay to sit and have some solitude. And back then it was called oneness. So it wasn't unhealthy or undesirable, but a necessary space for reflection with God. But what happened since then? With the absence of social connection, it's a very has a very different um, social connotation now to be lonely. And is that something about being an introvert and being an extrovert? I think being an extrovert nowadays is seen as a more desirable um, condition to be mm-hmm. in. So you're, are you more unlikely to be lonely if you're an extrovert? Who knows? Mm. Um, but yet the cultural and economic transformations that have taken place in the West, industrialization, consumer economy, declining influence of religions, we're not contemplating God so much anymore. They all have emphasized it's the individual that matters. And being lonely has become out of fashion. And not just out of fashion. Mm. It has huge emotional yeah. and physiological consequences. Sure. Touch, I read somewhere, actually can heal you. You know, if you're feeling sick and you have a little hug from somebody, you feel better. So great research out last week 
we share a particular um, uh, similarity with our genome with a particular, I think it's a fruit fly or some sort of fly. And researchers gave these, uh, these flies uh, some kind of cancer. I'm not sure which one. And they separated them. So if you had cancer, you could hang out with your other fly friends and then you could have cancer and not have any fly friends. And the, the flies that did have uh, no connection with their other fly friends, their tumours grew more quickly. So there is no doubt that loneliness kills. So we know that if you're lonely, 20% more likely to die. If mm. you're lonely, and there's a whole range. So there's a whole range of things that happen um, physiologically when you spend time alone and depression, anxiety, not reaching out to others on a cellular level. And there's good evidence to suggest that. Even more so, we know from our social uh, review of critical events. So every time there's a heat wave, the events of 9-11 are a classic example and really easy to look at some uh, population-based data. Those people that were connected to their communities did much better than those that were isolated. So in a crisis, in a flood, with global warming, changes. Classic example in global warming, hotter summers mean more older people don't hydrate well so they end up in emergency department, mm. which is why in our suburbs we have air conditioning clubs where if you own an air conditioner, reach out to those older people around you, invite them in and host an aircon party. Yeah, yeah. No police checks required, no extra insurance, just do it and, and, and just enjoy the risk of turning on your aircon and inviting older people over and encouraging them to drink. Enjoy the risk. Enjoy like the risk. Have the risk. Yeah. Bring on the risk. We talk about loneliness a lot on this show um, because, well, we've talked a little bit about how loneliness has evolved, but when we think about it in the future, which you just touched on, um, we're going to be probably experiencing more shocks and more change Mm -hmm. and to have a resilient community and be more connected to one another. We're more able to withstand those shocks. Correct. And the power grid often, for me, the power grid is the community. It's what's around you. From a government perspective, we often invest in things that are extrinsic to the neighbourhood. So you've got Mm. nurses and care workers, uh, police force, paramedics, everyone coming into the neighbourhood to do upon uh, older people. The shift which I think will embed resilience in communities is focusing on that neighbourhood aspect as the safety net. Because I work with community nurses, I go in and visit people who have no one else to visit them but that community nurse and we leave in 15 to 20 minutes. And who's there? The neighbours and the people around them, the Australia Post person who delivers mail. That's the social fabric that we need to tap into to be that safety net. Uh, And that's where I'm really excited about how to build that type of resilience within the streets and how to reward streets. So my foundation, One Good Street, seeks to accredit streets. So we've got a Google map that changes colour if you're involved. And what that uh, change in colour means is that your street's a good place to be old in. Yeah, right. Because you've got someone on that street who cares about older people and is active in doing things to ensure that an older person's life, they can have a great day every day. Now, we don't need older people to interact with our technology, our Facebook platform. They don't even have to pick up the phone. Mm. Around them becomes a better place and by de facto, they have a better life. Uh, Okay, so it's not up to them to seek help. It's up to their neighbours to seek them out to help. Combination, really respecting people's autonomy 
and I think that's what neighbours are good at and, mm. and we know how we know the boundaries of, of our neighbours and what we can and can't do. But on our street now, we're doing things for older people. And I meet people all the time who say, when I talk about my concept, they say, oh, there's an 83-year-old woman that I look after. She's Greek. Her family live in Adelaide. I make sure she gets groceries. I then do, I do the lawns. That's the type of thing we want to reward and mm. recognise. And the concept, for example, we know the, the Good Karma Network's really active here in Melbourne. And I've heard auctioneers in Kensington when they auction houses talk about the social capital of neighbourhoods that have this thick social market of connected connectivity, we want to do the same thing with, mm. with One Good Street because then there's a financial kind of benefit for the suburb that when people are auctioning houses, they say, you want to live on this street, it's, it's, it's accredited as being a good street to, to live in, if, especially if you're an older person. That, I've, as you were saying that, I'd been thinking, um, how, how do we counter the, the like, changing shape of suburbs and I mean I've got a, the one anecdote I can offer is that my, my wife's uh, grandmother who's in her mid 90s has been in the same house pretty much uh, I'd say since the 50s and it's in, a, it's in what you would probably for a long time have called a rough part of Dandenong but that uh, it's a very honest street but she, she has a neighbour that always used to come in and do the lawns and help out and everything like that and, and for all intents and purposes most people would see this guy as is looking like a rough bloke, you know, a, a well-lived-in skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet he, he kind of had this old-school thing about him of, his, of a respect for the elders mm-hmm. in the street and so forth. And and so there was never going to be a day go by that uh, she wasn't checked in on by him um, and so forth. And, and, I mean, look, that part of town is changing. I know around here, East Brunswick, we've got high-rise going on. So how do you... Uh, how do you get that social capital? How do you hold that social capital in an area when it's so very, very tempting for families to cash in on, you know, maybe the house that was bought for ten grand in nineteen eighty mm-hmm. and there's now worth three mil as a blank block? Like, I, I can understand the temptation for a family to cash in on that, but it, it very, very quickly guts out that social um, fabric. How do we work with that? We've got to design very intently for it mm. so that the organicness of it changes because the, the built form, uh, we start to interact with that built form differently. So we have to intently design towards that goal. Now, some great examples overseas in the UK where they design towards a participation culture. Mm. And so in people in apartment blocks, for example, may need to learn how to participate in the lives of older people in their suburbs. Mm. So therefore they need to be shown examples of how that's done. Mm. So in uh, Lambeth and Froome in the UK, they designed active uh, participation within suburbs and really activated suburbs. And these were apartment blocks, they were council flats, there were lots of renters involved, so it wasn't a stable population, a mixture of old, ethnic a very diverse community and they activated the suburb by running uh, tool libraries, tinkering cafes, repair cafes, Mm. community orchard, community uh, chicken, mass food production for uh, mums so mums could come in and use... Kitchens, etc. Oh, yeah. Commercial to, kitchens. Correct. Commercial kitchens. Lots of stuff. Skill sharing, all that kind of stuff. And so they designed it in such a way that was really easy. And they focused in those type of environments where there are lots of apartment blocks, lots of transient people, busy professionals. They knew that they could design it because they surveyed about 600,000 people and said, would you want to volunteer? Mm. And 60% of them said, we want to volunteer. When they said, well, how many, are you vol- uh, how many do volunteer? It was only 3%. So we've got design problems. 
we haven't designed participation to make it easy yeah. because we've made it cumbersome. We also haven't understood what volunteerism, volunteerism is in 2018. Volunteerism in 2018 is I want frequency and I want plenty of diverse opportunities. So I want to log into a platform of some description and I want to start really soon and do something for you. Mm. I want to mow lawns for 83-year-old. Then I might want to jump in and help cooking over here. Then I'm going to make some um, boomerang bags. Then I'm not going to do anything for three months because I'm busy with my own life. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to jump back in and do cycling without age and take older people out for a bike ride. And then I'm going to get onto that for a while. Then I'm going to walk away from that. So this this transactional, porous way that's light and easy, that's how we have to design for 2018 and moving forward to help people who live in different structures because built forms change. Mm. Architecture might be working against us at times and technology might be working against us at times. Yeah, it's interesting mm. to think about the built form and the architecture is a separate and overcomable problem. And then you have a social fabric that kind of stitches everything together. There's, we've had a few people on the show talking about different models for buildings. So having a more cooperative, collaborative mm -hmm. community within a building. So like the Nightingale is one example, mm. where you've got shared rooftop gardens, shared laundries, and the ability for the residents to participate in the design of the building. But most of the architecture, most of the buildings that we see going up, at least the medium and high density stuff, it's designing out any type of community. You drive into your basement car park with a private little fob on your key that only gets you into one lift and your floor in the building and that's it. You don't see anybody ever. Really, really hard to meet your neighbours. Mm -hmm. But like you say, if you have something else where you're able to participate in community life that overcomes those architectural and designed barriers, yes. then, yeah, I hope people would take Indeed. that up. So designing for so social collision, I don't think we've seen evidence that it... Social collision. Social collision. Nice. That's mm. what they call all those open plan offices and, and the big champions of that are the big Silicon Valley tech companies yeah. who every, everywhere say, uh, uh, in a, a massive kitchen and they hope that all these collisions happen. We haven't got enough evidence to say that's sustained and often with older people, they, they retreat into their worlds, which is why it's called a silent epidemic, and they, they have to protect their uh, their own independence. So often they don't let people in. They're not porous themselves. That's why they're hard to find. Mm. That's why lots of people, if you've looked at the Pick My Project um, uh, campaign, which is all the funding, which is like the Hunger Games of, of community <laughs> funding at the moment. Bam! Uh, and we're all <laughs> pitching against each other. No one ever thought to kind of join us up and fund us collectively, bless them. So maybe next year they might get that right. The those type of uh, initiatives to reduce isolation will be looking for older people. They're hard to find. They're really hard to find because they're often isolated and they have to protect themselves because they can't admit to the world that they're not coping. Because if you... I met a 101-year-old woman who lives not far in Brunswick here. She's lived in her house for 70 years. Her name is Vera. If she admits she's not doing well, she is at risk mm. of being moved out of a home of 70 years. So she is invested interest in saying, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. And that's why we use and partner with industry. And that's why it's so important not to rubbish the aged care industry. They... they, they, they Many, many good people work in that industry. We work with those nurses to go in and say, we know you're fine, but as an initial, we've got, uh, we're designing some social activities for you to change the choreography of your day. Mm. You don't need us, but we're here for you. 
And that just slowly gets into people's lives and it starts to change the way they live their lives. I go into a lot of homes and you'll find that uh, Italian nonnas in their 80s, immaculate. The house is immaculate, four-bedroom houses, Mm. immaculate. They live in one room and they keep everything else spotless because they're saying to the world, I'm fine. Don't take me away from Mm. here. Don't put me in an aged care facility. That's what we're up against and that's why it's a hidden epidemic. It's not enough just to uh, flood the place full of volunteers doing a whole lot of stuff with older people because loneliness, like you you teased out the layers of it the, and, and how it's an accumulative reality phenomena that people uh, often need meaningful relationships and you can be surrounded by a lot of people and not have meaningful relationships. So working out what are the meaningful ways we can connect people. Mm. One of our ideas, which we hope to go live in next year, is use matchmaker.com algorithms to create friendships with people who can't leave their homes because of immobility. I would love that. Do you know, I really want to be matchmade with a grand (laughs) or a grandpa. I don't have any here. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> and we are feeding our curiosity tonight with Matthew Bush talking about loneliness and all of the interesting things that are happening to combat loneliness and increase social connection. So, Matthew, talk us just talk to us a little bit about why you're interested in this. And you've mentioned your project, One Good Street. So a little bit more about that, I think, as well. Yeah, brilliant. So there's a the Australian Coalition to End Loneliness. So there, there are groups out there doing amazing things. There's an evidence base and a whole lot of scientists coming together. So there's a real movement within Australia. I'm personally interested in it because it's something that needs to be done. I wouldn't say it's a passion. Passion's metabolically expensive, so I don't believe in that we can all have these passions that we we drive forward with. This is something that needs to be done because I walk into houses and find people there who have had nobody visit them all day. And from that point, I say we can probably design something because I know there's a whole community out there wanting to do stuff. And all we've got to do is start designing. And I'm, I'm a clinician, but I'm also a designer. And I designed systems, I designed services. So I saw a design need straight away and decided to design towards social connection, especially with people who have a thin market of social activity. So for someone who's isolated, whether they're 18 with a mental health issue, uh, whether they're a new uh, immigrant or refugee with minimal contacts here, or they're 97 living in Brunswick all by themselves. They've got thin social markets. We know externally in other people's lives these really thick markets of activity. You get on Facebook in the neighbourhood networks and there's 2,000 posts a day. Everyone's giving away a whole range of stuff. Basil, I found a dog. Whose car keys are this? I've got a stroller. That's happening all the time. So there is a level of generosity and it's tapping into that and, and channeling that towards these individuals in a way that's designed with them. And so they were still respecting autonomy, still respecting their decision, but providing opportunities for them to reach out and connect with others. So that's the landscape in Australia. Policies have been written, so governments are getting together in regards to writing strategies for ending loneliness in Australia. The research is coming really uh, through strongly that this is killing people. So when we talk about older people at conferences, it's always falls and dementia and heart disease. But we will hear more and more about loneliness and isolation as being an imperative to address. It is not enough to visit your GP and, and walk out with a referral to a dietitian. 
because you're 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 malnourished. Mm. If they referred you to the local, so we talk about social prescribing as a model. So if they prescribe you to the local garden club or the local casserole club, then you get impact, which is social connection plus some good food, which improves your your overall weight and your overall nutrition value. So we're now delving into what do we have to do to get more impact? Because what we're currently doing as a medical profession, as a community service profession, is not enough. Hmm. Transactional service delivery is not enough and it, and it certainly doesn't enrich or delight the lives of our, our clients. Oh, delight. Isn't that a, something that we don't do enough? Delight the clients. So you talked about designing solutions and um, human-centred design to think about how to do things a little bit better and a little bit more delightfully. Mm. Do you have some examples of something that's worked and some things that are happening out there Absolutely. just now? Absolutely. So we've started a lending library of aged care equipment. And I started this because of my connections with adult children of older parents who were trying to uh, keep their older um, mum and dad at home and they were really stressed at that responsibility. And I call it the second shift. So when you have got an ageing parent who's, you know, may have cancer, may have dementia and you're trying to look after them at home, you've got your work day and then you come and do your second shift in the evening, mm-hmm. right? And if you've got kids, you're doing a third shift because you've got to do your kids and then you do, you know, that that space you... Uh, you reserve some energy in your fuel tank to manage mum and dad. And I saw a real need. So I I started to develop a lending library of aged care equipment because I wanted all of that stuff to be available free of charge to people who were stressed. And I also wanted to use it as a way of connecting them with other people in the same situation. So I, uh, somebody donated to me a scooter and I found a, I used the Bolton Clark, which is the organisation I work with. One of the community nurses had a young gentleman who was in his 40s called Nigel who didn't have a scooter. He was housebound and he'd been waiting three years for funding Mm. because he couldn't afford it, right? You're on a pension, how can you afford a four or $5,000 scooter? So I found a scooter in someone's garage and this woman, when I went to pick it up, she said, let me tell you about this scooter. So I knew that there was a narrative embedded in the object and in that equipment was the story about her husband who had died. So she wanted to tell me that and I knew therapy was happening because she was able to reminisce, she was telling me about it and then when she knew it was going to someone else, that because people don't want to sell their aged care equipment that they used on their mum and dad in Gumtree, mm-hmm. generally, or on eBay. Actually, they just store it because the the loved one's embedded in the object. So when I designed a way that would find someone who needed it and then feed that back to them, I knew that that was something really generative. We've designed it on our platform that it's a lending library. You can post your aged care equipment and then you can go and pick it up from somebody who's who's giving away. So if I had an electric bed or if I had a, um, a commode, wheelchair, whatever it is, I put it up and then you in the same situation come and pick it up and then you and I can connect and say, oh, yeah, my father's just died of prostate cancer. And you go, oh, I'm just looking after mum with X, Y, Z. And you get a, a, a connection, this peer-to-peer stuff where you're actually in the same boat because mm-hmm. most of us will never acknowledge that we're full-time carers of our ageing parents. We just go, no, this is something you do. You just do it for mum and dad. And it can be incredibly stressful when they go missing. My mother went missing. I couldn't find her in North Melbourne. It gives you an idea of the kind of stress that, that exists and you're still trying to do a full-time job and run a whole lot of other stuff, trying to get to the gym, trying to do a whole range of stuff, eat well, take the dogs for a walk and then you, you've got a, um, a mother who's gone missing in North Melbourne. 
gives you an idea of what you you know people are under that stress so connecting together just through the community not through professional help yeah going and speaking to some a professional about it is totally different from when you front up to someone's to pick up a wheelchair or a scooter and they go yep yeah i know i know been there that that's a one time that's that's a one time interaction is there any way of trying to um Bushy's pointing at Kent. Kent, you had a question. Oh, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean um, I'll, I'll finish my ahead, you. Ahead, yeah. Is there any way of making sure that those connections are able to be long-term rather than one yeah. time? So on our Facebook uh, group called One Good Street, so everyone look on it and, and, and um, happy to add you as members, is this kind of community. And so it's actually using Facebook for good and connecting people that way. So we post a lot of stories about all the good stuff that's happening mm. and posting stories about how individuals are, are, are surviving through that experience. And that's often enough. Uh, that's often enough just to be tapped into that and you dip in and out a- as you need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious to know about the role of the, the people we're identifying as lonely in this. Um, so we've... It, at the moment, the story sounds a lot like people being um, identified as lonely, whether they've self-identified as lonely or not. Um, so the problem identification, I'm really interested in what their role in the, mm. in describing the problem and maybe even the cause of the problem. And then their role in designing, to use the language mm. you were using before, um, their role and participation in the designing of the solution mm. um, and to what extent they are and how that and how that unfolds and then i guess the the cherry on that question is what does success look like mm, indeed really interesting examples in aged care facilities where you are put together with a whole group of people that you don't have a lot in common with and so you can still feel quite alone in those spaces and i see this when the buses come through and pick up a whole lot of older people from a range of different backgrounds and take them all to a community centre and they, they listen to something like a music session, etc. So on the... And the research backs this up that, that yes, that just designing moments of, of connection is not enough to alleviate loneliness, that it has to... They have to be meaningful connections. And often that's the one-to-one work where you've curated the right type of person to be present so that you get psychologically nourished from their presence with you the activities that they design. And often the, the, the evidence suggests that the best type of activity is that reminiscence activities where you've got a structure around tell me your life story and you start to pull life stories, their life story together. You start to scan their digital photographs and there's a group called lively.com which provides young people who have got no uh, looking for employment experience with older people who need tech help and they do that type of thing where they curate someone's life story. So some people won't acknowledge that they're lonely. Um, for our nurses who spend time with them or see them every day looking after their wounds, caring for them in their homes, etc., their care workers, they know that there's no connection. And I think at a point people are quite protective of their spaces because they have to be. If, they, mm. if you're 87 and if you've had a fall and family's worried, you are at risk of an OT or a physio after your hospital admission saying you should go into aged care. Do you know what the average length of stay is in an aged care facility? Six to 12 months. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It's not long. It is not long. Mm. You will do better if you stay at home, but staying at home is expensive and it requires a tremendous amount of of support. So some people won't acknowledge that. Others will. They will say no one calls. 
So they will volunteer that. I think the sophistication is is how we present a range of options that always promote choice Mm. because that's what's being robbed. Autonomy is going out the door when you're 97, trying to stay at home. Autonomy is whittled away by a range of people around you, even those that are well-meaning. So by providing a range of choices for them that are evidence-based that we know that work and then allowing them to make those decisions and also respecting their no. And the power of no is really interesting. When you, we work with people who just go, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. <laughs> we go, can yeah. we clean your house? No. Can we help you in any way? Here's some food. No. Yeah. The power of no is really important and maybe that's their last re- resort of independence. So the journey that we would go on with them is changing, uh, giving them more choice than just no. Mm. And that has to be hard won by trust, by curating the right sort of person. So success looks like curating the right type of person to have a really meaningful engagement with you. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. Our guest in the studio this evening is Matthew Bush and we are talking about loneliness as an epidemic. We've been touching a hell of a lot on loneliness in the elderly and community engagement. One of the things that I'm fascinated by is the concept that we live on a planet now of I think there's 7 billion of us or something like that. Staggering numbers when you really start to put your head into it. Um, We have cities full of high-rise apartment buildings occupied by several thousand people at a time and yet we have countless invisible people that walk amongst us people of all ages people i was saying off air you often hear about the working poor those who are in full-time employment but still not able to make ends meet i started to wonder about the um idea similar along similar lines of the the crowded loneliness like people who are exist in cities or in a town or or within a relatively good population base and yet remain invisible have no genuine social contact or engagement. And and can we speak to that a bit, please, Madhu? Because I'm, I'm sure that's maybe there's maybe there's folks are outliers or maybe they're more common than mm-hmm. I think, but I'm imagining situations, you know, someone of my age or similar who, who maybe has lost both parents, had no siblings, suddenly finds themselves just living in a new city, whatever, new job, but they don't know anyone or someone who's had to leave home early because of whatever. Um, how does that epidemic raise its head? Mm-hmm. So what is the future of friendship and what is the future of our connections is at the heart of that. We, we straddle a digital and tactile phenomena. Mm. So we have friendships that are digital and meaningful. We have friendships that are tactile and meaningful and then we have the opposite. Yep. And I think it, is, it manifests itself in getting the balance right between the two and getting nourishment from both. So there is that narrative around adults today, young people today, smartphones have driven them X, Y, Z. I'm going to resist that because a world with smartphones is a much safer, more interesting world. A world with social platforms is is an incredibly interesting world, safer world, a more diverse world. So the use of technology and those particular platforms, and we can all make fun of Instagram, and we will yep. with great joy, but <laughs> as part of that is if I find meaning, and I think at the core of loneliness is it's not having the connections that, that you value and you, you find meaning and nourishment in. There are times when I'm Instagram on Instagram 
and I get nourishment from it. There yeah. are times where it makes me woefully ina- feel woefully inadequate. Yeah. Woefully inadequate. And then there's the rage and the anger the, and the hey. That's right. How Look at that. Well, don't people work? Where are they? <laughs> right. So for, for a, a modern society and there are other societies that have, have gone through this and who have lived in high-rise, high-density apartments for a long time and Southeast Asia are a great example of that, a great example of also ingenuity because innovation will help us with some of that. And so most new apartments now, you download the app for the apartment, which has all the privacy built in, but you have ways of connecting almost like WhatsApp for your high-rise. Mm. Um, so people have choices there. Um, that's Unfortunately, that there is a digital divide because there are people who can't use that technology and who all need help to. So it, it does discriminate. Um, so there are some solutions to that. And you tend to be a little bit meaner when you're not face-to-face. I heard recently of an apartment block that had one of these social networks dedicated to that apartment sure, block, well. and they were all getting really angry with each other. Sure, sure. So that has to surely has to be moderated in order to keep things civil and keep the tone, mm. which is what all of us have to do on all of our channels, and especially if, if you're an administrator for community uh, engagement, it, there is a moderation piece. So human nature will always triumph, and yeah. you'll see all the glory of it, and, uh, <laughs> and so that is part and parcel of it. Did they bust out into floor wars? Like, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> those bastards on oh, floor 10 shits me. Yeah, yeah that they became really divided. Floor like 10 and floor 8 have got a together. feud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> floor 8 of Greg and floor 7 But up. yeah, how do you find those people? Because the elderly people, I imagine, will interact with care services more often. But the younger people who are lonely are those who wouldn't interact so much with services and wouldn't necessarily self-identify as lonely, mm. but probably need those meaningful connections more than others. How would you? How do you find them? Do they need to be found? So, providing a, a participation culture, and having done foster care previously, I know that it's when I'm alongside a foster child that I get the best connection with them. So, not going intently to do something with or for, but go, being alongside. So, I believe with with younger people, it is providing a participation culture which is really flexible for them to get involved or not and then to work alongside them. Mm. And then that, then things can, you, through that trust relationship, they may find more meaning in the, in the connection but also might devolve something. I don't think it's a problem to be solved. Mm. I think it's a phenomena to be managed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that stops everyone rushing in on all those crazy startups thinking, well, I've got the one tech solution to solve isolation and loneliness in everyone, and here's my app, yeah. my mindfulness app that'll sort all of that out. <laughs> because that becomes a bit coddling in the end, doesn't it? It's sort of like, you know, you know, a kid climbing a tree, but you're standing there on every step going, it's all right, I'm here. The kid just needs that opportunity to drop out of the tree. And, and that may be being a euphemism for... Like, yeah, if you're rushing in to save people from loneliness, I mean, in the end, they're just going to be pushing people away to get some peace back, yeah? Yeah, true. So there is that, that sense of, of, of we have to experience things in our life. It's yeah. like grief, loss, a range of things. And that's the, the successful uh, managing through those experiences is what builds those resilience. So mm. if I've had a bad day, the car broke down, et cetera, you know, it, it was a shit day, but I got through it, which then builds resilience because I haven't received, I haven't got too much psychological scar tissue, mm. and so there is absolutely, it's not problems to be solved. People aren't, and their lives aren't problems to be solved. There are phenomena in their lives that 
that can be managed through with the help of the community. And a really good example was what we you spoke about before about people that may die in their homes and no one knows about it. Mm, yeah. And when you think about that phenomenon, they're called unattended deaths. And so people can, um, a 87-year-old can, can have a fall, nobody knows, and then three, four, five weeks later. And we ask ourselves in 2018, how is that possible when mm. we've got so much data on the electricity use, water use, gas, we have post people delivering, jamming things in. At what point haven't we... That's what startups could do, design a way to triangulate all of that data and then raise an alert yeah. to say there's been no movement yeah, and this yeah, yeah. person is... 87, 89, still respecting their autonomy. No one's disclosing any information about this. It's about a new way of looking at this particular phenomena. And because government funding at the present moment in time is keeping people at home for longer, and as the baby boomers come into uh, their uh, 70s and 80s, so 2,000 people will turn 65 by the end of this week, 1,000 Australians will turn 85. Most of those will want to stay at home, Mm. which means we're at risk of a lot more people alone in their homes, which is why, when you ask me why are you interested in this, because I see the critical mass. I see the critical need for it. That's a massive thing, especially, yeah, that age group, in particular that age group, the baby boomers now are all... and, And what an incredible generation that has been in terms of, you know, wealth generation and experience and all that sort of stuff. But as they start to wind into the twilight years, it's an en masse too. I mean, we're talking... I know that... Huge swathes of those post-war families might have had, you know, five, six, seven kids often, and now those generations have had one or two kids or, or none, mm-hmm. and so you've got this huge groundswell now of people that are going to need yeah. to be accounted for. I just wonder also if the um, if the housing affordability crisis plays out over another generation, and so the the current uh, you know early career people who are struggling to get their first home, um, if they end up being old people who don't own their home at the time of retirement, then there's going to be another dislocation issue, isn't there, around um, you know their security? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and we know homelessness in women is rising over fifty. Yeah. So it's an absolute reality. But here's the great design challenge of designing ways to incorporate those people into homes, those four-bedroom, five-bedroom homes, and there are models that do that, that take women who are in their 60s at risk of homelessness and match them with older women who have got four-bedroom houses. Awesome. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. I have too. Green Apocalypse has been the show. Thank you very much, Kent, for panel beating. Great to be with you. Awesome. And... uh, Katie, pleasure to see you again. Yes, and thank you, Matu. I really enjoyed that show. It was great. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.